has been uh, with his people, uh, Israel, leading them out of Egypt, and now he's making a way to dwell with his people wherever they go. So no matter where the people of Israel go, God is gonna be before them, he's gonna be with them. God is not far off, but the Israelites had felt that he was far off. For centuries, they'd felt that way. They felt abandoned by God. They'd wondered what happened, and now they see that God is going to be with them, that he will go before them. He'll lead and direct them. So God repeats this passage about the tabernacle as a way to emphasize his grace, the grace of his presence with his people. But there are some other reasons why God has perhaps chosen to repeat himself in this passage. So before we talk about those briefly, let's just recall what happened. God's led his people out of slavery in Egypt through his man, Moses, the one that he's strengthened and empowered. Now, no one would have predicted or known what God would do in Egypt and to Egypt. Think about the, the, um, uh, the plagues, uh, the plundering, the, the passage through the Red Sea. And then he's told the people of Israel that they're to build a tabernacle, a place for God to dwell. But immediately after that, after all that God has done, after all that he's revealed about himself, his power, his authority, his strength, his might, his relational love, after all of that, what did Israel do? Well, they built a golden calf to worship. Now, last week, James helped us to see that God reestablished, in a sense, his commitment, his covenant with his people. But that was said to Moses, and that's just words. But what about action? Words can be cheap, what about action? So imagine that you don't know the story of the Bible. You've never read any of the Old Testament before. You're just reading along in Genesis and Exodus. So imagine that person, anticipation is building as they're reading this. They're thinking, after the failure of Israel, is the tabernacle actually going to be built? Will God still love his people? Will the people actually fulfill his commands? So the repetition highlights Israel's disobedience in relation to God's faithfulness. So Israel is disobedient and yet God is faithful and praise his name for that because we're the same as Israel, amen? We Christians are all too often disobedient as well and yet God is faithful to count our sin as falling on Christ and to count his righteousness as going to us. So the repetition highlights something magnificent about Christ, about God's character. Even despite our sin, God is willing and able to dwell with us. We are his people. The people of Israel sinned, they repented, and God received his people back. Now, I hope this hits home for you today. I would just ask you to think back to when you've sinned recently. And as you've repented from your sin and you're turned from your sin, turned back to God, we're reminded that God is faithful. 1 John 1.9 puts it this way, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So praise God for that amazing truth. His repetition in this passage highlights that for us. But perhaps a final reason for repetition is that we're forgetful. We're a forgetful people. So pick a book of the Bible. So someone just name, Jeremy, name a book of the Bible. Hebrews. So do we need to read Hebrews just one time and that's it? No, of course not. We, that's, that's true in our personal time when we're reading our Bible uh, just on your own. You can read Hebrews multiple times and get things out of it. That's true in our corporate time together. That's true of topical studies. That's true of our connection classes. Uh, you can go to a connection class once. You can go again and you can still gain lots of information from that. 
We can never plumb the depths of God's word. So if we decided that next year in 2024, we're gonna go back and we're gonna go through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings again, would that be good for us? Yeah, of course it would, because repetition is good for the soul. All right, with all that said, what's actually in these five chapters? So what's in these five chapters? Uh, we're gonna walk through them now and see, I think I can do this in less than five minutes. So uh, just a summary of these five chapters, and then we'll get to some applications. So as a whole, chapters 35 through, through 39 are about the building of the tabernacle. Chapter 35 starts, so in your Bibles you can flip through and you can try to follow along. I'll read a couple of verses. So chapter 35 starts with a reminder to keep the Sabbath. Now that's highly appropriate given the, the enormity of the task that they're about to undertake. They're about to build a building for God. Now that can be an overwhelming thing. And they want to be reminded, God is reminding them, keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get overwhelmed and get your focus only on building the building. Remember who you're building for, remember God. So remember the Sabbath. So it's very important that they start with that. So after a reminder about the Sabbath, God calls everyone to participate by providing the materials for the building of the tabernacle. Everybody's gonna participate in this. So chapter 35 highlights that everyone gave to the need, and they did so with the right attitude, with a generous heart. So chapter 35 is all about preparing to build. So laying out the blueprints, counting the costs of the materials, seeing what, what's gonna be needed for building the tabernacle. That's chapter 35. Chapter 36, though, is primarily about the calling and equipping of specific individuals to use their God-given gifts to work in the construction of the tabernacle and the construction of the contents of the tabernacle. So the latter half of Exodus 36 repeats Exodus 26 almost exactly. It's about curtains and frames. Lots and lots of curtains, lots and lots of frames, curtains upon curtains upon curtains, frames upon frames upon frames that are in the tabernacle. And just a couple of the verses of 36 that don't talk about curtains and frames, chapter uh, 36, verse two. And Moses called Bezalel and Holiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. So God called Bezalel and Holiab and many others to use their God-given skills to do the work of bringing the design of the tabernacle into reality. So chapter 35 is about preparations for building. Chapter 36 is about the construction itself. And chapter 37 then is about the items that were placed inside the tabernacle. That would be the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar. Uh, many, of you, many of you will remember the very intricate uh, detailed instructions that were given earlier in Exodus about this, the very meticulous work that was called for in the making of the ark and the table and the, the, ta uh, the lampstand, all of those things. So all the items inside the tabernacle. As chapter 37 was about the items inside the tabernacle, chapter 38 is about the construction of the, of the items outside of the tabernacle. And here's verse nine uh, and 10. And he made the court. For the south side, the hangings of the court were of fine twine linen, 100 cubits. Their 20 pillars and their 20 bases were of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were of silver. So again, very meticulous details here. Uh, very intricate work both inside the tabernacle and outside the tabernacle. That's chapter 38. Chapter 39 is about the garments that were worn by the priests who would do the work of mediation inside the tabernacle. 
And so a couple of verses about that. And they made on the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And they made two settings of gold filigree and two gold rings and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And they put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. Again, just an incredible level of detail here that God was uh, having them work for the construction of his dwelling place. He had a very specific plan for this building. And there you have it. That's the contents of chapters 35 through 39. But if that's the contents, then what's the point? What are we supposed to, to get from this? Is this just a bunch of dry, boring, seemingly meaningless construction plans, or is there something more for us to see? Well, hopefully there's something more, so we'll continue on. So if we study this and we let God speak to us through these passages, I I think that we'll find this passage is really rich with application, just lots and lots for us to see here and apply to our lives. It seems that all of that application is organized around Uh, the point or the idea that God is gracious to make us a place fit for worship. God is gracious to make us a place fit for worship. So let's spend a bit of time seeing how exactly God shows his grace in these five chapters. And by doing that, we're gonna look at three categories uh, or overarching ways that God shows himself to be gracious. That's in financial giving and the giving of skills and in keeping his promises. And to help you remember this, and maybe to make my daughter cringe a little bit, I'm going to call these categories bling, skills, with a Z, (laughs) and vows. So bling for financial giving, skills for the giving of skills, vows for promises. So all of these things reveal God's grace. So first, let's look at God's grace in financial giving. So we see in these five chapters that the Israelites are taking on this enormous task of building uh, a building, a place for God to dwell. And if you were at our last members meeting, you know how expensive it is uh, to build something new. Uh, We were talking about a building project that is gonna be over $23 million. Uh, We have revised that. If you come back at the next members meeting in August, we'll be sharing a plan uh, for a, a remodeled auditorium and we can walk through some of the details with that August 27th for you on that. So where exactly did this group of former slaves get the resources to build this tabernacle? Well, if you take a look back at Exodus 12, if you'll remember, God sent 10 plagues against the people of Egypt, and eventually Pharaoh relented and the enslaved Israelites uh, were freed. But before they did that, before they were freed, God instructed them to go back to the Egyptians and ask them for all of their possessions. All right? There it is now, you see. (laughs) So he asked for a parting gift from the Egyptians. Reading from Exodus 12, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So it's amazing, isn't it? God is gracious in giving his people the possessions they would need in the building of the tabernacle far in advance of when they were gonna build. There's more that we could say about that, but we're gonna continue to move on. Then when Moses asked the people to bring their gold and silver and fine linens for the building of the tabernacle, the people responded. 
And we see that in Exodus 36, verses three through seven. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Now, does this make your jaw drop? It's amazing, isn't it? God actually told them to stop bringing contributions, to stop giving to the needs of the tabernacle, building the tabernacle. Again, more that we could say on this, and we will in a minute, but let's keep moving. So notice too, though, the, the people gave with the right motivation. So Exodus 35.5 says, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. So I, I don't really enjoy paying my taxes. My, my heart's not really in it. This is not a, a, a screed or a, a rant against paying your taxes. You should pay your taxes. It's necessary. We all ought to pay our taxes. But I don't really enjoy it. Uh, if I were going to rank my top days of the year, I'm pretty sure April 15th would be at the bottom of the list. I, my heart's just not really in it that day. But this wasn't a tax. The people weren't being taxed. You can see they gave of a generous heart. They wanted to give. They weren't forced. God's people gave freely and willingly to the work of the Lord. Israel gave with the right motivation. And finally here, see that the people gave lavishly. They gave the very best, the most precious metals, the finest linens, the most extravagant and expensive colors, the most costly jewels. Israel checked all of the boxes in what they gave for the tabernacle. You can read more about that in the passage. But someone calculated the, the price of the gold that was given for the tabernacle uh, so that it lists out in, in uh, the passage the weights of the gold that were brought and all the metals and all those things. Somebody calculated the price of the gold in today's dollars. Just turn to your neighbor and take a guess at how much, just the gold. How much in today's dollars is that worth? I don't know what you thought. I was blown away by this. It's over $40 million. Over $40 million. Just the gold alone. Not counting all of the fine jewels, all of the linens, all of the things, all of the wood, all the things that were uh, for the tabernacle. And again, this was for a tent. This is for a tent. This was extravagant giving. Extravagant giving by God's people. Now, isn't it obvious that God is gracious to his people? They had a task. God, in his kindness, provided the means for them to, to provide for this task, to do this task, and the people responded. Now, oh, that that would be said about us, that that would be true of us. As we consider next steps in providing facilities for our next generations, as we consider giving towards our church budget, don't you think that God has given us what we have so that we might give generously and so that we might give extravagantly to his work? 
Wouldn't it be amazing if someday the elders said, as we're building a building, the elders said, you don't need to give any more. There's more than enough. I would love to be a part of that. I would love to be a part of a church that that was said to be true. God is gracious beyond measure. Amen? So we see that in financial giving or bling, as we put it. Now, let's see that God is gracious in providing the skills that they needed. So let's just acknowledge at the start that God can do anything, right? We've seen that in Exodus. We've seen that through the plagues. We've seen that through the parting of the Red Sea. God can do anything he wanted. So he doesn't need anything, and he certainly doesn't need anything from us. So think about this. The Israelites could have, could have rounded the corner out in the desert. Actually, maybe there's no corners in the desert. Out, out in the distance, they could have seen what looked like a mirage as they got closer. It's a fully constructed tabernacle. They could have seen a fully constructed tabernacle out in the desert that God just placed there. God is capable of doing that, right? But God, in his kindness, got them involved in his work. He involved them in his work. He's relational. He's after our hearts. He wants us to know him. He wants us to be involved in his work. So I'll also notice that God was gracious in equipping those who were skilled. Specifically, he equipped Bezalel and Aholiab as master craftsmen and as teachers to bring this project from blueprint to reality. But this wasn't just a two-person job. The Bible uh, makes pains to, to be clear in these chapters that nearly everyone participated in the work of the tabernacle. Friends, God has called each of us to specific tasks. Romans 12 says, uh, he's given each of us as believers the, the gifting and ability to perform the tasks that he calls us to. He's gracious to involve us. He's gracious to equip us to do his work. So my question is, what might God be asking you to do? If you don't know the answer to that, then pray. And gather a person or two around you and ask them to help you to discern what God would call you to do. And don't try to do what you're not equipped or able to do. Now, I have about zero fine motor skills. Um, those that have seen my handwriting know that. Um, I cannot you give me scissors, I can't cut a straight line with scissors. I'm serious, I'm not kidding about that. So needless to say, I can't sew. I'd be no good with a needle and thread. So praise God that he didn't call me to sew all of the curtains in the tabernacle. Stay faithful to do whatever it is that God has called you to do. And finally in this section about skills, we we want you to think about where the Israelites got many of their skills. Where do they get their skills? So they developed their skills when? When they were slaves. This is such the picture of new life in Christ. Think about the contrast here. They were working as slaves, but now they're working as free men. They were working in a hopeless place, opulence all around them, but they couldn't enjoy it. Now they're working on their way to the promised land. They were working with brick and stone. Now they're working with fine jewels. They were working for the glory of man, of Pharaoh. Now they're working for the glory of God. And if you're not a believer, there are few better pictures of new life in Christ than this. 
God is the giver of all good gifts, all of the talents, all of the abilities. Indeed, every day that you wake up, every breath you take, everything that we have is ultimately from God. Now, you may not realize it, but if you're not a believer in Christ, you're enslaved by sin and by your desires, by your promises, or by your passions. You've been giving your life, or living your life, all for you. And metaphorically, you're the same as the Israelites in Egypt, enslaved. But you can live as a free man or a free woman. You can live your life looking ahead to the promised land. You can live your life not for the glory of man, but for the glory of God, the one who created you, the one who loves you enough to give you those gifts and those skills and those abilities in the first place. All you must do is turn from your sin and turn to God. So we've seen how God is gracious in the giving of finances. He's gracious in the giving of skills. Now let's see how he's gracious in keeping his promises, vows. So let's recap how unlikely God's promises have appeared. Israel had been slaves for centuries, literally no hope of freedom. The Egyptians weren't going to set them free, ever. Yet God promised that Pharaoh would let the Israelites go, and so it happened. Even more unlikely was that the Israelites would gain their freedom and that they would gain tremendous wealth from the very hand of their oppressors. Remember, God promised the Israelites would plunder the Egyptians, and so it happened. The very jewels, the fine linens, the rich metals, all of those things came from the Egyptians, and now they're being used in the construction of the tabernacle. Friends, God's promises are as good as having happened. What God says happens. What God ordains comes to pass. When God speaks, no matter what it is, it is more certain than the sun coming up in the east. God is gracious in keeping his promises. But see, also, God's faithfulness to the Israelites. God promised, all the way back in Genesis, he promised that he would make Abraham the father of a multitude and that he would call this nation to be his own possession. He promised in Genesis 15 that even when his people weren't faithful, that he would be faithful to them. We see that here. Israel had been unfaithful to God just a short time earlier with the golden calf. God didn't have to build a tabernacle. He could have forsaken his people. That's what they deserved. That's what we deserve. We're rebels against God, against our creator. But to drive this point home even further is faithfulness. Chapter 39, as we talked about a moment ago, is about the design of the priestly garments. Aaron and the other priests were decked out in the finest of clothes. God did this for the priest who just directed the golden calf to be constructed and to be worshiped. God is gracious and merciful in his faithfulness to himself and to us. And further, God promises elsewhere that he'll never leave, that he'll never forsake us. And at this time in history, building a mobile tabernacle is a kindness to his people. Wherever they go, he goes with them. Friends, don't we see over and over and over how faithful God is? how gracious God is. Now, I told you earlier that there were three evidences of grace in this passage, bullying, skills, vows. There's a fourth. 
a bonus one uh, that's really not mentioned explicitly in this passage, but we're gonna spend the rest of our time on that, and that's Jesus. Jesus, of course, is not mentioned in this, but we see allusions to Jesus all over this passage. The tabernacle, the furnishings mentioned are just shadows of the real thing. So we're gonna take a look at just a few of these. So first, the lampstand in the tabernacle was meant to bring light. When the priests were doing the work in the tabernacle, in the holy place, they had to have some light to be able to see because there were curtains, it was surrounded, it was dark in there. They needed a light to do that work. But in the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the true light, which gives light to everyone. And he says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the lampstand in the tabernacle was just the shadow of the real light. Whereas it served a purpose at one time and one place and it would need to be renewed continually, the true lampstand provides the light of life. It would never need to be renewed. Think about the bread for the table, the bread for the altars within the tabernacle. It would need to be baked daily. It would need to be refreshed continually. Let's read a trio of verses from John chapter six. Verse 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then later he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And later he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus is the ultimate provision for our daily needs. Look at the curtains. God is holy. We'd know that if the only book of the Bible that we had was Exodus, we would still know that God is holy. It's all over Exodus how holy God is. We see the purpose of the curtains in the tabernacle was to separate the holy place where God, his presence was from everywhere else from our unholiness. God's so holy that we can't even be in the presence of his glorious and pure holiness. So a a curtain barrier was placed in the tabernacle to separate us, to protect us from the holiness of God. But look at what Jesus did. He's our great mediator. He's our great and perfect and final sacrifice. And when Jesus breathed, his last on the cross, we're told that the veil in the permanent tabernacle, the tabernacle, the temple in Jerusalem, that veil, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That which once blocked access to a holy God was now opened wide for all to come in who have been covered by the blood of Christ. We see that more expressed more eloquently in Ephesians 2. We read, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus has made peace. He's our mediator. We were once alienated, but now we've been brought near. He's the one who paid the price for us, and he's the one who made it possible 
to approach God with confidence and holiness rather than in fear and trembling. We no longer have need of sacrificial altars to cleanse us of our sins. We no longer have needs of of barriers to keep us from God. We have peace with God and been made holy by the work of Jesus. And finally, we see that Jesus is the true tabernacle. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelled with us, and now the portable presence of God in the tabernacle is perfected through his Holy Spirit who dwells or tabernacles in us, as Romans 8 9 says. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He's the true lampstand. He's the true ark. He's the true bread. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the true Moses, the perfect mediator between God and man. The purpose of the tabernacle back then was to show how God desires to relate to his people, to be with his people, his grace in relating and being with his people. The purpose of the tabernacle for us today on this side of the cross is to show us how imperfect, how incomplete that tabernacle really was, how much better Christ is, how gracious God is in giving Christ to us. We see this more clearly as we consider the last section of our passage today. So our passage in chapter 39, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 39 ends like this. So imagine a processional. Moses is sitting there. Everything is being brought before Moses. Every piece of the tabernacle, the the items inside the tabernacle, the items outside the tabernacle, everything is being brought before Moses for inspection one by one. And we read in verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamp set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basins and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. This is one of the few times in Scripture, and really one of the few times in our lives, when the people actually did what God commanded, everything that they commanded. It's amazing, isn't it? This huge, enormous task. God gave them was gracious towards them in allowing them to build this tabernacle, and they did it. So we see here that everything that Israel did in obedience to God was brought forth 
for inspection, and it passed the test. But friends, what we don't read here, and what they wouldn't have known back then, is that it still wasn't enough. This tabernacle would get old, colors would fade, dust would mar the shine, metal would dent, everything would need to be replaced and reworked. This tabernacle, as magnificent as it was, it was temporary. It was a place fit for worship, but as wonderful as it was, it wasn't permanent. It wasn't enough. This place fit for worship would soon be unfit for worship. Eventually, it wouldn't pass the test. It wouldn't pass inspection. But what about Jesus? He passed inspection. He passed every test. Tempted by Satan in the desert, he never faltered. He never sinned. Tempted in the garden, he held true and was obedient to the will of the Father. Tempted or tested by death, he proved victorious by rising from the dead. Jesus was completely obedient and faithful, perfectly holy, the perfect one and done sacrifice. The tabernacle in the desert would never pass the inspection year after year after year, and neither do we. In our own strength, in our own nature, we have no hope of passing inspection. But in Christ, we can, and we do, because he's made us to be a place fit for worship. Jesus passed inspection so that we don't have to. Someday we'll all stand before God for inspection. Those who have repented of their sin, those who are in Christ, God will look on us and he'll see Jesus. God will see that Jesus passed inspection on our behalf. Now I started our time this morning saying that um, I had been reflecting on my past over the past uh, couple of months and I'm wondering if you would do the same. For those of us in the room that came to Christ when you were a teenager or later, I'd ask you to consider God's graciousness and kindness as you can see the difference in how you were before Christ. For everybody else, think about uh, how unfaithful you've been at times to God. Now, I've never constructed a golden calf for worship, but I've done just as bad and far worse than that. And I would imagine that you have too. And if you're like me, you can look back on your sinfulness, you can get lost in that, just beating yourself up over and over about stupid decisions, about sinful behavior, about harmful words that you've said to your spouse, your coworkers, your roommates, your children. Some in the room, I know, are thinking of things just from this past week. Your guilt and your shame are not far off. But if you've repented, it's gone and it's done. It's been paid by Christ. You've probably heard this saying before that for the believer in Christ, for every one look at your sin, you should take 10 looks at your Savior. And that's so true. God is not dangling your golden, golden calf over your head. He's not reminding you of your failure. So don't get lost in looking at your sinfulness. Confess your sinfulness. Turn from it and remind yourself of God's grace. If God freely gave, 
financial blessings, if he graciously gave skills, if he kept his promises to the Israelites even after their failure with a golden calf, then what would he do for you? The Israelites brought nothing to the table other than their chains of slavery. The Israelites didn't earn the bling. They didn't deserve the skills. They weren't, uh, uh, they didn't deserve those promises. And yet God was gracious to give them all of those. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he's that same way to you. All that you have has been given freely to you. You're loved and you're wanted and you're forgiven and made new in Christ. God made for the Israelites a place fit for worship, but God's done the same for us. He's not made us a movable tent for us. He's given us a movable body. He's made us to be that place fit for worship. He's made our hearts clean through the blood of Christ. He's made us holy through the righteousness of Christ. And God now dwells within us who are his children. And he's done that out of his gracious kindness to us. We're not fit for worship in our own strength. We can't approach God on our own. But God draws us in. God enables our faith. God enables our obedience. And if you're not a believer in Christ, if you want to be welcomed into the presence of God, if you want to have eternal life for tomorrow and new life for today, there's only one way, and that's to become a place fit for worship by living for God, by turning from your sin, by resting in the finished work of Christ and making you a place fit for worship. Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We approach God because he initiated a relationship with us by his grace. We enter into his presence because Jesus passed inspection. And by his grace, he has made us a place fit for worship. Let's pray. Father, you have been so kind so good, so gracious to us. We thank you that you are relational, that you give us tasks to do, but you, you equip us, you enable us, you want us to work with you through those things. God, we thank you for all the things that you've given us. We thank you for the example of new life, that we no longer have to live in slavery that we have a better calling. And God, we pray for those in the room that don't know you, that they would see that as well, and that they would turn from their sin and turn to you. And we pray for those in the room that are believers but are stuck in their sin, not able to recognize and see the freedom and the grace that you have and that you've given. And I pray that you would set them free from that, that they would turn, that they'd repent, that they would turn away from their sin, that they would recognize the freedom that they have in you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.